but we're beginning a new series today in the book of Galatians, Galatians, and the series is called No Other Gospel, and the idea to go through Galatians was originally Bruce's idea, Elder Bruce, so he will go ahead and receive all the credit or stripes for my preaching. It's all going to Bruce, so just remember that. What's your email again, Bruce? Yeah, it was his idea, and... Uh, but I think it's a good idea. And, you know, we, we don't, we don't on our, during our elder meetings, when we're trying to figure out what to preach through next, which book, we don't have a lot of struggle with this. Um, I don't think that, that God is, like, intentionally trying to guide us through certain books. He wants us to be in his word. So we don't have to battle over which book to be in. God is pleased when we preach his word, whether it be Leviticus or Galatians. So Galatians made sense because it deals with a false gospel, which we're surrounded by these days. And uh, so that's where we're going, but thanks, Bruce, for the idea, and really, it's the Holy Spirit working in you. Uh, before we actually start dipping into the book a little bit, we need to have some background, some context, and then we're going to need to pray. Um, we're going to look at, firstly, we're going to look at the who, what, where, when, and why of Galatians, because we need to know some things about the author, we need to know some things about the context. If we actually desire to properly understand any book we're studying, we've got to know the who, what, where, when, and why. We have to know the context. We can't just cherry-pick verses because we can go anywhere with that. So we need to know some, some background here. Context is critical. We say that all the time here. Uh, so take your Bibles and turn right over to Galatians chapter 1. Uh, when we actually get to the verses, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5. Uh, but right now, we're going to look at the first W, the who of Galatians. When I say this, I mean who wrote it? Well, the author identifies himself as Paul, the apostle, in chapter 1, verse 1. And not only does he identify himself there, the author identifies himself there, but the letter is full of corroborating personal references. In other words, he's constantly pointing to himself. Uh, only 2 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus actually rival Galatians in degree of personal reference. So Paul is constantly referring back to himself and pointing to himself, establishing his authorship throughout the epistle. And from the earliest days of the church, Paul's authorship of Galatians has been acknowledged and never seriously challenged. And the reason why I say that is because many of the books in the Bible have been seriously challenged, usually by liberal scholars trying to disintegrate the authorship and then the authority of the scripture. So nobody's really challenged Galatians throughout church history. Everyone knows that it's Paul. Um, another who, who was Galatians written to? Well, it's in the name, <laughs> to the Galatians. <laughs> And at the reference here, really, if you look at chap chapter 1, verse 2, is the churches of Galatia. So that's who it's written to, the churches of Galatia. These churches were comprised of primarily Gentile or non-Jewish Christians. They weren't Messianic Jews, which means they were a Jewish person and then became a Christian. These were Gentiles. These were Greeks. These were Scythians. These were uh, just Gentile, non-Jewish people who were saved and became Christians. So they, they primarily, people like us, I'm, I don't, I'm not of Jewish descent. Uh, so Gentile Christians are in these churches in Galatia. These churches were located in, uh, according to Scripture, four Galatian cities. That's The churches were in four Galatian cities. What cities? Antioch. Iconium, Lystra, Derby, those are the major cities where these churches existed. And these churches were planted by the Apostle Paul, who's the obvious author of this book. They were, uh, they were planted by him and his companion at that time, a guy named Barnabas, not Barabbas. Okay, that was a bad guy. Barnabas was a good guy. Uh, the churches were planted by Paul and Barnabas during Paul's first missionary journey. You can actually research this in Acts 13, verse 14 through chapter 14, verse 23. It shows the planting of these churches. Now, during the second missionary journey, Paul and Silas visited 
these churches in Galatia, and what they were doing is they were delivering a ruling from the Jerusalem Council regarding circumcision and obedience to the Mosaic Law. We read about this in Acts chapter 15, verses 23 to 29. So when Paul and Silas come back around the second time and visit these churches, they bring an official document uh, produced by a, the ecumenical council in Jerusalem, basically all the major church leaders, the apostles, they bring this document to give it to these churches to set them right on Christian living. There was great confusion at that time over circumcision. There were men touring the churches saying, look, if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to be more Jewish than Gentile, so you need to be circumcised, obey the Mosaic law, and believe in Jesus. And this document dealt with that heresy, and Paul and Silas come back around to these churches and try to unconfuse the Gentile Christians who were thinking that they now needed to be circumcised. And uh, when they, uh, Paul and Silas were actually visiting these churches that second round, this is when Paul met a young disciple by the name of Timothy. Timothy, right? Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. Timothy was a unique young man. He was very well spoken of by the brothers, brother Christians, at Lystra and Iconium. So Paul met Timothy, got to know him, heard about his, his walk with the Lord, heard about his journey and his faithfulness, and he decided he wanted to take young Timothy with him along the journey. But there were a couple of problems there. Firstly, Timothy's father was Greek, and it's not that being Greek was a problem, but the issue is, is that Greeks do not affirm or believe in circumcision. They didn't back then, which means that Timothy was basically partly Greek and uncircumcised. Uh, the Gentiles back then, the Greeks didn't follow any of the Jewish law, so that was a little bit of an issue. You would think, well, why is that an issue? Well, you'll find out why now, because circumcision is not required, but there was a rationale for it here. So the first issue is Timothy was partly Greek, had a Greek father, he was uncircumcised. That would pose a problem. Secondly, Timothy's father was very well known by pretty much all the Jewish people in his community, especially the Jewish religious leaders. So they, they knew Tim's dad, they knew that he was Greek, they knew that that was an uncircumcised family, what have you. And here's the issue. If Paul were at this point really to add a half-Greek, um, uncircumcised young man to his evangelism team, this would negatively impact his ministry. He knew he would lose opportunities to preach the gospel in the synagogues to Jewish people and to Gentile God-fearers. Remember, Jewish people at this time and still today make a really, really big deal of circumcision. And if you're a a guy who's trying to evangelize Jewish people and he knows that you're an uncircumcised Greek or what have you, you're probably not going to get an audience with him because he's not going to give you the time of day because you're too pagan for him. And this is the thinking back in the first century. This is the way that people thought back then. Remember, Paul believed that he had been called by Christ to preach the gospel to who first? To the Jew. Right? Romans 1.16. How could Paul preach to the Jew first and fulfill his calling with an uncircumcised Gentile outsider like Timothy by his side? He would have probably not even been permitted to enter into the synagogues, which is where he primarily preached the gospel. Now, I know it's a cruddy thing, but it's the way that it was. Bringing Timothy along would literally wreck the ministry. Paul understood this. So he took Timothy to a local rabbi and had him circumcised. Not because Paul believed that he and Timothy were under the Mosaic law. He believed that he had absolute freedom in Christ, that Christ came and fulfilled the law, and that's not something that he had to do to, to please Christ or uh, something to supplement his faith like the Judaizers said. He did it as a matter of practicality for the ministry. He didn't want to damage the ministry. And so he takes him and has this done. Why? It was necessary that Timothy fit in with Jewish people or else Paul has no Jewish audience and how can he reach the Jew first? That's why this happened. 
And guess what? I don't know about you, but if somebody came to me and said, look, if you want to be part of my little evangelistic crusade, you need to get circumcised at 50 years old, I'd probably be like, I'm probably not going to go ahead and be a part of your little evangelistic crusade. That sounds painful, and I don't know if I want to do that. And young Timothy didn't resist at all. He said, no problem. Where's the rabbi? He volunteers himself. He immediately complies. Why? Listen carefully. Why would he comply? He was younger. Well, is that part of it? No, not necessarily. But he complies because he loved the Lord and cared about the mission of the church more than about his own flesh. That's why. That's why he, well, if that's what it's going to take for us to be able to reach Jewish people, then cut. Let's do it. What was he actually doing? This is amazing, the character of this young man. And this is not a sermon about Timothy, but partly it is right now. He was actually following Paul's excellent example. Remember what Paul said? When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring Jews to Christ. When I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under the law. Even though I am not subject to the law, I did this so I could bring to Christ those who are under the law. When I am with Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I, I too live apart from that law so that I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. When I am with those who are weak, I share their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to see some saved. That was his attitude. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 through 22. That's the NLT, because it's a pretty good paraphrase of what's going on there. This young Timothy had this attitude. Well, what is necessary that, that we can continue in the mission? Okay, I will do that, even if it's painful. So the who, it's written by Paul. It's written to the Galatians. We have some backdrop ground here. Number two, the what. What is Galatians? Seems like a silly question, but pertinent. It is what we call an epistle, which is not a word that we use today very often. What is epistle? It just means small letter or short letter. Uh, Galatians is one of 13 epistles or small letters written by the Apostle Paul. It is the ninth book in the New Testament. It is situated between 2 Corinthians and, as Bruce says, Ephesians. Ephesians. Uh, Galatians has been called some pretty cool things. It's been called the Magna Carta of spiritual liberty. It's been called the battle cry of the Reformation. You know, that's my favorite period in church history. It's been called the Christian's Declaration of Independence. And that's not independence from God. That's independence from the law. Martin Luther once said, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. To it I am, as it were, in wedlock. Galatians is my Catherine. And if you know Martin Luther, he had a wife named Catherine. It was Luther's uh, careful and submissive study of the book of Galatians. Uh, that is where he discovered God's plan of salvation by grace working through faith. If you know the story of Luther, you know that as a, as a Catholic monk, he had a really hard time with the grace of God. In fact, he quite well rejected it because he just thought God was so absolutely holy, which he is, there's just no way that God could, by grace, forgive sinners. Luther had done things in his life, and he was just one of those guys that didn't believe that God could save him. And he was a monk practicing religion and teaching the Word. And then he opens up Galatians one day, and he's reading it, and he finds, he, it really, the Holy Spirit works in his heart and in his mind in such a way that it finally clicks. And he can understand now how he's covered by the righteousness of Christ, not his good deeds. And he's covered by grace, not his efforts. And it just clicks and everything changes for this man. This man would spend eight, seven, eight hours in the confessional every day confessing his sins. At one point, the, the padre that oversaw him said, quit coming to the confessional. I, you confessed these sins earlier today. Yeah, but I repeated them at noon. Well, you're covered by grace. 
Well, no, I can't be. God's too holy for that. This was his thinking. And then he pops open Galatians and boom, finally he gets the gospel. Finally he gets it. And he was in a system, Roman Catholicism, that literally teaches salvation by faith plus works. I would say Galatians was undoubtedly the most important book of the Reformation. It was the spark that ignited Luther, and Luther was the spark that ignited the Protestant Reformation. Number three, where? We've got the who, we've got the what, now we've got the where. Where was Galatia? Uh, the name Galatia is, is derived from the barbaric Gauls or Celts or Celts who settled in Asia Minor after several centuries of plundering the Greek and Roman empires. Under Roman rule, the original region of Galatia was made part of a larger province by the same name in Central Asia Minor. How does that translate today? Modern-day Turkey. That's where it is or was. Galatia was actually probably one of the largest provinces in the area. Um, it was pretty massive, really. Uh, about 44,000 square miles, which makes it bigger than Kentucky and Tennessee. It's a huge piece of land. Massive. Big, big territory. Another where. So where is it? We know where it is. It's in modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor back then, centrally located there. Where was Paul when he wrote Galatians? Uh, well, he was not on house arrest or in a Roman prison. Galatians is not a prison epistle like Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those epistles were written while he was incarcerated. This one was not. Paul's exact location is, is rather uncertain, but it seems that he was back in Antioch, uh, and this is a different Antioch. There's Pisidian Antioch, and then there's Antioch, which is kind of like above uh, near northern Syria. So he was back in the original older Antioch, if you will, uh, and this is where he actually began his first missionary journey. He began it in Antioch above Syria and then went into Antioch, Pis uh, Pisidian Antioch and these other cities. So he was probably back in the, the church that sent him out originally. That's what people believe and think. Um, it's probably the most logical location, at least in, in my mind, although the exact location is not known. Um, he was, however, on the road for about 18 months during that first journey, and when he returned to his home base, the church in Antioch above Syria, this is when he received a letter describing the situation in the Galatian churches. And Paul immediately responds to the issue that's happening in these Galatian churches by what? Writing this epistle. So it's all happening within basically a span of 18 months or so. Uh, number four, when? When was Galatians written? It was probably written just before the Jerusalem Council in AD 47. Uh, again, that's Acts 15, pretty much the whole chapter. Now, the interesting thing is there wasn't much time between the planting of the Galatian churches and the writing of this letter. 18 months, roughly. Okay, so, so you plant a church or a series of churches. You give the people the true gospel. That's how, the church, that's how people are born again. That's how these churches are birthed. They're, they've got people in these churches, and, and these churches are thriving and doing well. But within 18 months, they're already giving themselves over to a false gospel, and Paul is having to readdress them. He's having to, not readdress, he's having to address them for the first time since he was there. 18 months. That's fast slippage, isn't it? I, I feel as if that when, once Paul left, the false teachers just came right in. Uh, it, it, so you've got, you've got this, these churches falling into serious error within under two years, this is why Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 6 of Galatians. So quickly, so quickly you're already deviating. The false teachers, the Judaizers is what they were called. They really wasted no time at all. They came right in after Paul and Barnabas left. 
And I would say false teachers, they love to prey on new believers. Boy, do they ever. They love it. Why is that? Because new believers aren't very well developed theologically. And they're not expected to be. You don't get saved and know the whole Bible inside and out on day two. You don't know much. You pretty much just know that Jesus saved you from your sin. And now you're starting to learn that you've got to live for him. But you don't know much at first. You don't know much within that first year or 18 months. Uh, false teachers know this, so they prey on young believers. Young believers are easy targets because they lack biblical knowledge. They are more easily blown about by every wind of doctrine, Ephesians 4, verse 14 uh, new believers tend to lean on their own understanding rather than on rock-solid doctrinal truth or trusting in the Lord, Proverbs 3, 5, right? Well, a new believer is more like this mode. Well, I think the Bible means this. And then they run with what they think it means. And if what they think about it isn't true, then they're running with error. This happens. The point is false teachers know this, and that's why they go after baby Christians or that's why they go after immature Christians who belong to churches that do not exposit God's word and work hard to ground their members in the doctrines of Scripture. It's a very serious thing. You know, we've talked about this over and over and over, how churches today are more interested in trying to get people in so they can get a decision than they are in grounding the people of God in the word. False teachers know this, and they prey on immature or new believers. And that's precisely what happened here in Galatia. As soon as Paul and Barnabas leave, as soon as the taillights on their camels, whatever, as soon as they couldn't see the taillights on them, they came right in. And they started perpetuating a false gospel. Oh, you need to get circumcised and believe in Jesus. This is what happened. When was it written? Probably around 47 AD. Why was it written? Well, we were kind of discovering that, right? The why is, why was Galatians written? It was written to combat a deadly heresy and to call Christians who were being led astray by false teachers to return to the true gospel. That's why it was written. That's the entire purpose of the book. The basic situation Paul addresses in Galatians is clear enough from the opening uh, of, the, of the letter body right there in the beginning. I mean, he omits any thanksgiving. Did you notice that? If you read ahead in the first few verses, usually he says, hey, I thank God for you. I pray for you. He says these things in his epistles. There's nothing like that in Galatians. There's no thanksgiving. There's no commendation. There's nothing like that. He goes right into correction. That's not a fun letter to get, but it's necessary. He omits any thanksgiving for the Galatians. He immediately decries their flirtation with another gospel. Chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Man, you guys are giving, you, you're walking away from the true gospel, giving yourselves over to a false gospel. That's how he opens his letter. Boy, that'd be fun. This counterfeit gospel is being propagated by false teachers who infiltrated these churches and were confusing the non-Jewish Christians by insisting that their faith in Christ be supplemented by submission to circumcision and other elements of the Mosaic law. Chapter 1 makes this clear in verse 7. Chapter 5, verse 10. Paul responds to this challenge in three stages. First, he uses his own experience to illustrate the relationship between the truth of the gospel. Uh, chapter 2, verse 5, verse 14. And the law of Moses. Chapter 1, verse 11 through chapter 2, verse 21. With a particular focus on his relationship to the Jerusalem apostles. Chapter 1, verse 17 through chapter 2, verse 14. Second, he uses Galatians, the Galatians' own experience, and especially Scripture, to argue that the justification that accompanies belonging to the seed of Ab Abraham is by faith, not by works, apart from any obedience to the Mosaic law. This is what he argues in chapter 3, verses 1, all the way through chapter 5, verse 12. And then thirdly, he shows that conduct that is pleasing to God is secured by the same faith and the work of God's Spirit apart from the Mosaic law, right? The law of Moses, chapter 5, 13 through chapter 6, verse 18. That's really the body of the book. He really, what he's doing is he argues for the true gospel against a false gospel throughout the entire book. This is what he does. 
And I would say this, I would never give approval to false gospels. I, I would never say I want false, false gospels out there. I wish that, 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 that Christians today and churches today just all believe the true gospel and, and that's all they knew, that's all they understood, that's all they affirmed. I, I would love to have that. That's not even realistic. But then again, false gospels have a purpose, don't they? They cause us to have to dig into the true gospel. And they cause us to cherish the true gospel more, don't they? So within God's overarching providence and sovereignty, he allows false gospels because they enunciate the true gospel. They cause the church to bear down, to bore down on the word and to get to the heart of the true gospel and to commit to the true gospel and to preach to the true gospel in a way that maybe they weren't doing before. So false gospels, as much as I hate them, they serve a purpose. But unfortunately, they lead a lot of people astray. And Paul does not want that for the Galatians. He wants to make sure that they're grounded in the true gospel. That's the letter in a nutshell. That's the who, what, where, when, and why of Galatians. I'd like to pray and ask for God's help before we begin our exposition of the verse, first five verses. Father, um, we thank you for just giving us a little refresher course on the who, what, where, when, and why of Galatians, just giving us some background, some context, a timetable, things that are necessary and that we can go back to as we're actually expositing and working our way through this book slowly and carefully. So we thank you for the time that we've had and the clarity that you've given us. We thank you that uh, I think that we all now now understand what is going on here and, and why this was written. And I pray, Lord, that as we work these verses that the... Uh, that even in this greeting here, the salutation that we're looking at, we see the true gospel. I just pray that that is clear and that if there be anyone here that does not yet know, comprehend, understand, believe by grace the true gospel, that you would bring them to salvation. You would cause them to be born again and to understand and to know and to repent. So uh, help us there. If there's anyone here that is flirting with the false, a false gospel of works plus faith, that you would call them out of that. And just help us to see the true work, the true finished work of Christ, and to believe that and that alone. And to know that, that it's because we're saved by grace through faith that we do good works. We don't do good works so that we can have or maintain or keep or earn grace. And so help us to understand that. This is a, a, a critical book and a critical time in church history here, a critical time in RHC's history, a critical time in our community where there is so much falsity and lies and false truth and false gospels. And um, it's just, a, these are crazy times, Lord. Teach us and train us. Be glorified. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we'll pick it up at verses 1 through 2a. All that said, now we can look at the book. Uh, it begins with this, Paul an apostle, listen to what he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. What a, an interesting way to start a letter. Really what he's doing is he begins by identifying himself, right? Okay, look, it's me that wrote this. Paul, remember me, the guy that planted the church? I wrote this. And he identifies himself by giving his title, apostle. He refers to himself as an apostle. He actually did this in nine of his other epistles, or nine epistles total. Why didn't he use that? The question is, why didn't he use this title in all of his epistles? He calls himself an apostle and in nine of them, but not in all of them. There's 13. It's, that raises curiosity for me. Why, why, why not just say the same thing over and over and over? Why does he leave it out of Philippians and First and Second Thessalonians? Why does he leave it out of Philemon, which is really, really short? It's like a page. I suspect it's because those churches and individuals that he wrote to did not question his apostleship, and Paul felt no need to assert his apostolic authority. That's why I think he did it. In that handful of churches he doesn't do, they had no problem with who he is or with his apostleship. But in Galatians and these other churches, they were not submitting to his apostleship, affirming his apostleship, believing that maybe he was an apostle. 
the way that they should have. I think that's why he does it in those letters, in the nine. He actually had no trouble with the Philippians at all. If you go back and read the epistle to the Philippians, he, he was super encouraged by that faithful little church, so much so that he called himself a, a fellow servant with those brothers and sisters at that church. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. He kind of opens up with that, you know, me and Silas or whomever he writes with there. Uh, we're, we're your fellow servants, so... That's, that's an amazing thing to be considered a servant alongside of somebody like Paul. Sadly, the Corinthians, however, began to reject Paul's apostleship. False teachers had infiltrated the church and persuaded a great many believers to turn against Paul and cast aside his teachings, the gospel. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 really shows this. The same thing was happening, sadly, in the church's throughout Galatia, in those cities in Galatia. And I, I believe that's why Paul began this letter with that high title, Apostle. He is, in a sense, defending his apostleship and establishing his authority so that the Galatians will what? Take him seriously. Now, it's sad that he had to do this. He's an apostle. He's the planter of this church. And within 18 months of planting the church, people are starting to say, I'm not even sure he's an apostle. The guy that came there and preached the gospel, the guy that God used the human instrument to do that, people were saved, the church is born and all that. Now, 18 months later, within two years, they're saying, I'm not sure he's an apostle. Now, these members, what? They should have been defending his apostolic authority and position against the false teachers because that's who was basically undermining it and saying, hey, you guys, I know you guys are all Christians now, but you probably should get circumcised. Paul didn't teach you that, did he? Well, that's why he's not really an apostle. This is the kind of stuff they were saying and leading these people astray. They should have been defending Paul against the false teachers, but instead they were allowing Paul to be slandered, and they started jumping on the Judaizers' bandwagon as Christians tend to jump on bandwagons, don't they? Ice bucket challenge, purpose-driven life. I can give you a long list of the bandwagons. Today, woke, it's a bandwagon. Why would, now, now think about this, why would the Judaizers, these false teachers, right, the circumcision group, why would they seek to undermine and hopefully destroy Paul's apostleship. Why would they do a character assassination, a managerial positional assassination on him? Why would they do this? Well, if they could do away with his apostleship, then they could do away with his teachings, couldn't they? If you destroy the leader, then the teachings go with the leader. And that was their ultimate goal. If we can undermine and belittle and discredit Paul, then we can discredit his teachings and we can infiltrate the church or impregnate with false teachings and people will start living out our version of the gospel. That's entirely what they're trying to do here. They go after Paul because to go after him is to destroy his teachings. That was the goal. Destroy the teacher, destroy the teachings, replace the teachings with a false gospel. What is their false gospel? It is justification by faith plus works instead of faith alone. Paul not only uses the title apostle, right, to defend his apostolic position and authority, but he goes on to explain that he did not receive his apostleship at the hands of men. I love that. Did you notice that? It's almost like, I know that soon as I say I'm an apostle, the false teachers are going to say, yeah, but just a bunch of worthless men appointed him. So he's not really an apostle, right? That's what, that's what, he's, that's what he's thinking is going to happen here. So he goes on to say, well, hey, no man or group of men made me an apostle. He was not brought before some board and prayed over and then anointed with oil like a king or an elder of a church. None of that happened. He tells the Galatians that he received his apostleship directly from the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father, who are what? The highest authority. I wasn't made an apostle by the Jerusalem elders. I wasn't made an apostle by the other apostles. I wasn't made an apostle by the elders at Antioch. I was made an apostle by Jesus Christ and God the Father. This is what he opens up with. Therefore, they cannot question the legitimacy of his apostleship. Paul was, however, commissioned by 
the church at Antioch, the one above Syria. He was commissioned, but that had nothing to do with his apostleship. That came directly from the Lord. All they did was commission him to go out on a missionary journey. Well, we'll send you out with our love and blessing and prayers, and we'll give you whatever supplies we can. That's all that was. had nothing to do with his apostleship. Only the Lord Jesus, and you need to know this, only the Lord Jesus can make a man apostle. He's the only one that can make an apostle. The most important qualification for an apostle is that they had to know Jesus, not just by faith, but by sight. You had to physically know him and walk with him or interact with him physically. You had to have personal experience with him, not spiritual only. You had to see and know him physically. Uh, you might think of Matthias, who replaced Judas Iscariot. Guess what? He's not mentioned really anywhere but in Acts 1, but he actually toured with the others when Jesus was going out around through Israel and preaching the gospel and doing the things he did, Syrophoenicia and everywhere else. And Matthias was there, and that's, they casted lots between two men, and the lot fell to Matthias. He was legit because he knew Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verse 26. Paul knew Jesus personally and physically. Yeah, he didn't tour around with the other 12 with Jesus. He wasn't part of that. He was an enemy of the church at the time or shortly after that, but he didn't tour them, but he still knew Jesus physically and personally. He met the Lord on the Damascus Road. We all know that story, his conversion story. He meets Jesus. He meets Jesus, and Jesus is in his full radiant glory, and it blinds Paul. He can't even see. His name was Saul then, but Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, he has a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus. Jesus saves him. Uh, he experienced several other physical appearances of the Lord, Acts chapter 18, verse 9, Acts chapter 22, verses 17 through 21, Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Maybe you didn't know that. Maybe you thought it all ended at the Damascus Road, but he had many meetings with Jesus, sometimes through dreams, but he still, Jesus still appeared to him physically. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, he declares, this is Paul talking, he says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? You can see how they're questioning his apostleship. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord? He's talking about physically. You're saying I'm not an apostle. He appeared to me. That's part of my qualification. I saw him physically. I met him face to face. Paul not only knew the Lord Jesus physically and personally, he also received direct revelation from the Lord, didn't he? 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 14. I mean, come on, we don't even have to go there to look at that. It talks about it there. Just what are we reading right now? The book of Galatians. What is the book of Galatians? Direct revelation from Jesus Christ to Paul. The very word of God. All 13 epistles, the word of God. Direct revelation to Paul. He not only knew Jesus, but Jesus revealed divine truth to him and had him be the human instrument writing it down through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This epistle and all the epistles are direct revelations from the Lord Jesus, the very Word of God. And men and women who claim to be apostles today are, I say, with very little respect for them because it's just false and ugly and disgusting, but it's an absolute joke. Why? Because they do not meet the qualifications. It's impossible for them to meet the qualifications. You had to be around in the first century. You had to know Jesus physically and personally, have a face-to-face encounter with him. And if anyone said to you, well, I am an actual apostle and I met Jesus in a dream, I wouldn't believe him at all. And not only did you have to know Jesus physically and personally, meet him face-to-face, have interaction with him, he had to appoint you to the position. It's his appointment, right? Paul says... I wasn't made an apostle by men or a panel. I was made an apostle by the Lord Jesus and God the Father. That appointment comes from the Lord Jesus directly. And you have a lot of people today, especially in the charismatic circles, not all charismatics, but in some charismatic circles that are claiming to be apostles, the apostle this, the apostle that. And my question to them is, I didn't know, I mean, you're almost 2,000 years old. That's in, I mean, that's a greater miracle to me than the fact that you're an apostle. You're almost 2,000 years old here, and you're still around, and that, that's, that's incredible. And some of them are women, and then I add that, and, and you're female. 
That's interesting, too, because there were never any female apostles. How does that, I, I mean, you know, is this where we get our truth, or are you getting it? I mean, obviously, you're getting it from somewhere else. God has a specific design for it. It's, it's males. It doesn't, it's not because males are better. We know they aren't. It's Mother's Day, for crying out loud. I know, I know that we're not better. My wife is 10 times the Christian that I am. It's not about better. It's just about the way God has set things up. But there are no apostles today. You can't, you can't be an apostle today. Those who claim the title these days, that's all it is, is a title. It doesn't have any divine authority, no apostolic authority, no apostolic appointment, nothing, zero. There's nothing behind it. There's no juice. And I think the reason why they do it is because they think it attracts people to come into their churches or whatever. I don't know exactly why they do it, but it's all false. It's all garbage. The apostolic era ended with John. You know, John that wrote uh, the Gospel of John, Revelation, the epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. You remember that guy? He's, he was the last living apostle. Once he died, and he was the one that lived longer than all the rest. Once he passed away, that was it. The apostolic era ended. No more apostles from that point forward. Part of the reason why you had apostles was because the Word of God was not complete and being distributed. And once the Word of God is out there, then we don't need people to go around and give us divine direct revelation any longer. We have it recorded in the book. There's no apostles today, friends. But Paul was an apostle, and he received his apostleship from the Lord Jesus and from God the Father. Notice how Paul points to the resurrection at the end of verse 1. He says, he's speaking of the, the Lord Jesus, and then he says, God the Father, that's where my apostleship comes from, referring to God the Father, who raised who? Jesus, who raised Jesus from the dead. Paul never missed an opportunity to bring up the resurrection. Go back and read through his 13 epistles. You'll find it. He always finds a way to talk about it. One of his favorite realities and doctrines. Paul knew that our faith is futile or futile, and we'd still be in our sins if the Lord Jesus had not rose from the dead, right? This is exactly what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. Here, he's basically using the resurrection to further establish his apostolic authority. It was as if he was saying, I was appointed to the apostleship by the Lord Jesus Christ and by God the Father who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. His omnipotent power made me what I am. I am an apostle because of the power of God. The same power that raised Jesus has put me in this position. This is what he's saying here. In verse 2a, Paul asserts his apostolic authority by pointing to those who support him, who are around him, who could testify to his apostolic authority. Who does he refer to here? The brothers. He's probably referring to Barnabas and maybe other close brothers in the Lord, other companions. We don't know exactly who he's referring to, but that, that's probably who it is. Obviously, this group that toured with him and traveled with him and supported him and prayed with him and, and loved him and provided for him when they could, they all recognized Paul's apostolic authority. That's the point. Even these guys that are with me do not deny my apostleship. That's what he's saying. Even the, the remaining apostles at, the, at this time, including Peter, and, and even the elders at the church of Jerusalem, all of the major leadership within the church and a great many Christians in these churches all recognized and submitted to Paul's apostolic authority. Nobody denied it. Just the Judaizers and just those they influenced. Those are the only ones. Paul's apostolic authority was established by Jesus and God the Father, and it was supported by the brothers who were with him and beyond. His position was vastly superior to the false teaching self-appointed Judaizers who were confusing the Galatians and trying to set themselves above Paul's authority. That's what they're trying to do. Now we can move to verses 2b and 3. Are you tracking with me okay? This is where we see the greeting, the initial part. He says, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the initial or first part of his greeting. Uh, he actually here identifies whom he's writing to, the churches 
of Galatia, and then he inserts his favorite opening line, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins eight of his epistles with the exact same salutation. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, 2nd Thessalonians, and Philemon. It's all identical, the exact same wording. He begins his other epistles with kind of the same thing, just slightly different versions. But in, ultimately, he loves to open his letters with, with this salutation. Same thing. And what he's actually doing here is he's saying more than hello. He is saying hello, but he's saying more than that. His salutation, if you pay close attention to it, is the gospel in a nutshell. Just in his greeting, we see the gospel, right? It is the grace of God the Father that establishes peace with God the Father, and this grace comes to us through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is exactly what he's saying through his hello. Notice that. You've got grace coming first. We're saved by grace. That makes peace with God, and it all comes to us through Jesus. That's the gospel. How cool is that? You've got to know there is no peace with God the Father apart from grace, and there is no grace apart from believing in the Lord Jesus. You've got to know this. If we want peace with God, we need grace. And if we want grace, we must believe in the author and perfecter of grace, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we get the grace. Through Jesus, we get the grace. By Jesus, from Jesus, we get the grace. And that grace establishes salvation and establishes peace with God the Father. That's what Paul is saying in his, hello. Amazing. He hasn't even addressed their error yet, and he's already combating it just by saying hello. This is the intended meaning of his salutation in every epistle. The gospel. Especially here in Galatians. Why? Because the Judaizers were preaching a false gospel of faith plus works. Let's move to verse 4. He says, speaking of the Lord Jesus again, who gave himself for our sins. Now, this is gospel on steroids. Who gave himself for our sins. Why? To deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Wow. Boy, is that a loaded statement. That's a sermon series right there. But not today, so don't worry. He continues his greeting with another powerful, powerful gospel statement. He tells the Galatians that the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins so that we would be delivered from this present evil age. Really what he's talking about here is the atonement Christ made on our behalf, on the cross, right? Christ paid the full price for our sins on the cross. The transaction is complete. Or as Christ himself said, what did he say? It is finished. It's done. You can't add to it. You can't subtract from it. It's over, right? John 19, 30, that's me adding to what the Lord said there. But when he said it's finished, he meant it's done. I've completed it. Christ paid for our sins on the cross so that people like me and you would not have to pay for our sins in hell. Did you know that? Do you understand that? There has to be a payment for sin. You either pay it or Jesus pays it. How do we pay it? Suffering in hell. And it's totally just because we've all committed cosmic treason. We sin like you can't believe. Either Jesus paid for it in full or you will spend eternity paying back your sin debt. Jesus goes to the cross and pays for our sins so that we do not have to pay for them, so that those who believe by grace through faith do not have to pay for them. This is exactly what he came to do. 
Now, since our sins are already paid for, it makes no sense for us to try to pay for them through good works. Amen? Why are we trying to earn our way when Jesus paid the full price, emptied his account, and, and the currency of his account was his own blood? Why are we trying to make our way and earn our way with God when Jesus paid for it in full? That's what Paul is arguing through a, hello. I like what MacArthur wrote. I think it's in your, your bulletin there. Salvation is not earned by one's efforts to eliminate sin. How many of us in this room have tried to eliminate our own sin? Good Lord, that's exhausting. Salvation is not earned by one's efforts to eliminate sin. It is the result of one's trust in God's promise to forgive sin through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful, wonderful, truthful gospel Bible statement. But the Judaizers were in effect saying, the atonement of Christ is insufficient to atone for your sins. You must do your part too. You need to get circumcised and obey the Mosaic law and believe in Jesus. And if you put that combination together and live that out, you'll be good to go. That's their false gospel. Now, when we try to atone for our own sins or try to earn our way with God, we are usurping Christ and denying his finished work. Christ gave himself for our sins because there is nothing we can do or give to atone for our sins. There's nothing we can do to cover them. Whatever we can conjure doesn't have enough value. He gave himself because the giving of himself met the quota. Our efforts to clean ourselves up and make ourselves righteous are literally futile. It's like putting lipstick on a pig. And you're saying, is he calling me a pig? Kinda. I'm one myself. Literally, us trying to make ourselves presentable to God is like putting lipstick on a fat, dirty pig. I like pigs for bacon. That's about it. It makes zero sense for believers to try to earn their way and add to the work of Christ. But that's exactly what was beginning to happen in the churches throughout Galatia. Because these churches were young and the Judaizers were very, very persuasive. They were also pretty well respected. Why? Because the Judaizers had come from Jerusalem, which is what? In some ways, the birthplace of Christianity. Acts chapter 15, verse 24. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, where the church is born right there in Jerusalem, the main hub. And so if you were someone who seemed to know the word and, 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 um, and you went to a Christian who was very young and you said, well, by the way, I'm from Jerusalem. I, I'm a teacher over there. I'm a preacher over there. Boy, you'd be, able to, you'd be able to say a lot in front of younger Christians. They'd give you an audience. They'd listen to you. They would see you as an authority figure or somebody who knew what they were talking about. Oh, he's from Jerusalem? He's the, oh, he's Jewish? He's, Jesus was Jewish. He's the real deal. Oh, I got to get circumcised? Well, I need to add that, I guess. This is, this is how, uh, this is the Judaizers' powerful influence. Powerful influence. In fact, if a group like them came around to churches today, maybe it's a different issue, not circumcision. Maybe it is. I think they'd have much success in churches today. I do. Because churches today just aren't really grounded in the word anymore. That's gone away, sadly. They were undermining and attacking the atonement of Christ by saying, you need to add to what he did. That's the only way you're actually going to be saved. Paul continues to lay siege to the Judaizers' false gospel by pointing out how the Lord Jesus also delivered us from the present evil age. The Greek word for delivered is exerio, and it carries the idea of being rescued from danger. The phrase present evil age does not refer to a, a time period or timeline, but to the satanic system that has dominated the world since the fall and will continue to do so until the second advent, the return of Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul used another phrase to describe the same satanic system. He called it the domain of darkness. That's what exists in the world today. There is a, a shroud and a domain of darkness. The whole world is darkened and in darkness. 
Paul is essentially telling the Galatians that Jesus has done something else for them that they could not do for themselves, right? He not only gave himself for their sins, they could never do that, but he's the one who also delivered them from darkness, from the present evil age. That's what he's saying. This Christ that I speak of, that I introduced you to 18 months ago, he's done something for you you can never do. You couldn't wash away your sin. You couldn't deliver yourself from the domain of darkness. Why are you trying to add to the gospel and deliver yourselves? What are you doing? This is what he's saying through his, hello. You know, sin and darkness are two major obstacles sinners face, and there's nothing that they can do to deliver themselves. No amount of effort, no amount of good deeds, uh, no amount of obedience to the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, whatever, none of that will bring them out from under the power of sin and the power of Satan. Nothing. They can't do it and nothing else can do it. Only Jesus can deal with sin and deliver sinners from the present evil age. And this is precisely what he came to do. He came on a rescue mission to save sinners from the doomed world and from the devil's darkness. And if we, by grace, by the power of the Spirit, will repent of our unbelief and turn to Christ by faith alone, our sins are washed away and we will literally pass from darkness to light. Hebrews 10.10, 10, Acts 26, verse 18. To drive a a final stake through the heart of the Judaizers' false gospel. Paul tells the Galatians that Jesus' finished work, doing away with sin and delivering from darkness the present evil age, it was all done according to the will of our God and Father. It was never the will of God our Father for sinners to atone for themselves, never. It was never the will of God our Father to for sinners to try to clean themselves up, to try to pull themselves up and out from under the cloak of demonic darkness. It was never God's will for that to take place, for them to try to do that, for them to try to atone and deliver themselves. The Father's will from eternity past has always and will always be for the Lord Jesus Christ to perform these humanly impossible tasks for sinners like you and me. It's always been that way, always will be. Every attempt to free ourselves goes against the will of God our Father and totally undermines the plan of salvation which predates the world. If we try to mingle good works with our faith in an effort to save ourselves, we are not only violating the will of God our Father, we are slapping the face of the one who paid for us with his own precious blood, on the cross. Trying to earn your way, believe and earn your way, is a slap to the face of Jesus. We are, in a sense, if we do this, trampling underfoot the Son of God, profaning the blood of the covenant, and outraging the Spirit of grace. Hebrews 10.29. You might be thinking, is Adding a little works to faith, really this serious, Pastor Phil? Come on, man, you sound like you've got a screw loose. It's a false gospel. Listen to me. Adding works to faith is a false gospel. It's that serious. If it weren't a false gospel, Paul would not have written about it in Galatians. It's Serious, it's a false gospel, the kind of which Paul addresses in this very epistle. False gospels cannot save. They can only give the illusion of salvation and a sense of false assurance. No man in the history of the world has ever been saved from divine wrath, from the fire of hell, from despair, from sin, from the power of sin, from Satan. No man has ever been saved from those things, especially the divine wrath, by what he does. It's never happened before. Nobody's ever been able to secure their own salvation through their own works. It's never happened and never will happen. Faith alone makes a man or a woman righteous before God. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed 
and it was accounted to him as righteousness. But works are filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. No one, no one understood these things better than Paul. He was the ultimate religious person before Jesus intervened. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel, and even more special than that, from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a member of the strictest religious sect, the Mosaic Law Obsessed Pharisees. He was zealous for Judaism to the point of persecuting the church of Christ. He was blameless, he thought, in that he followed all of the religious laws and traditions. But when Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road and was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, he began to realize that his efforts to save himself were rubbish. Philippians 3, verses 5 through 8. Whatever he thought he had gained under the strain of false religion, he now considered loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Those who are truly saved will follow in Paul's footsteps. They will. They will begin to, to realize that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by works or by a combination of works plus faith. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. They will begin to recognize that their efforts to save themselves are rubbish. And they will begin to give God all the glory for their salvation, just as Paul did in the last verse, verse 5. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.